Yes, hello everyone, and welcome back to the None But the Brave podcast. I am Hal Schwartz, and I'm here with the king of Bruce compilations, Mr. Fred <laughs> McLean. Oh man, it's been a while for that, that's for sure. That's how people remember you, though. Okay, well, I am yeah. okay with that. I think it's probably now they think of you as co-host of this show. Oh, that's all right, too. That's all right, too. And hey, I used to be the Boots.net guy, so that's it all, uh, I, keep, I keep changing my title. And we've made it through almost a full year of, of these shows. It's pretty incredible. It has been. It's been a heck of a year. A lot uh, a lot has happened, even yeah. if Bruce hasn't really been on tour. And we've got a lot to talk about tonight, led by the very fun interview we did with Rolling Stone's Brian Hyatt. And that's going to come up shortly. And I had a great time doing that. Oh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. He he He's one of us. And yes, he is. So uh, to have that kind of passion and, and interest and, and obsession at Rolling Stone certainly means uh, means we get the, the fruits of that. Yeah. But tonight we're going to start with a topic that we talk about a lot, <laughs> and that's tracks two. And yeah. uh, you, you have some news, correct? Right. Well, no. so let's go back to the beginning. No. You don't have... <laughs> You don't no, have, I have news? news. That's the answer. No. Oh, it's not you, happening. the news is that there is no tracks too. Right. It's not okay. happening. Despite all our hopes and wishes and dreams, it's not happening this year. I guess not. So to go back to the beginning and to fill people in a little bit on where the tracks two stuff came from early in 2019, I heard from a source inside Sony music that Bruce was working on a box. The info was actually pretty specific and i told it to you and there was a little bit about it that we were like wow what and we can't really go into details but then you took it to someone that you know who would know such things and gave them the info and what was their response how did you know this <laughs> yeah so we <laughs> so like, definitely guess... believe the tracks two is a real project that is in progress and will arrive one day we know there have been other clues Gary Malabar's Facebook post from about a year ago. Of course, Bruce himself seems to have get dropped some hints when he said that stuff would magically appear one day. But based on what is now being heard, that one day will not be in 2020. No, and unfortunately, we that sound like we're going to get something. We don't know exactly what, but we're getting something in the next in the next few months. Of course. If we didn't get anything, that would be pretty on brand for 2020, let's be honest. <laughs> I feel very optimistic that we're going to hear something cool soon. Yes. Yes. Fingers are still crossed because you never know with this guy. And as you said last time, we need Bruce to save the year. And <laughs> that's our best chance. Yes, it is. <laughs> it may be our only chance at this point. <laughs> oh, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're, you're our only hope. Although speaking of things that would help. <laughs> of course, Bruce uh, involved this week at the DNC. Normally, we wouldn't talk politics, but he keeps inserting himself. So it's a, here it's we a go. It's a little tough to talk about Bruce and not have some political discussion yes. at this point. That and is 100% accurate. To recap what happened, Bruce supplied the rising for a very beautiful video that ran during the convention. And I think further putting a stamp of approval on the nominee, he and Patty then made an appearance at the end of the video. Right. That was aired the first night of the convention, right, of the yes. Democratic National Convention. And, yeah, it was it was a pretty moving video. And, and certainly I you're right with them actually appearing in it. It certainly gave more uh, more of an explicit endorsement than 
than it should than he did four years ago, at least at this point. It definitely did. And it does leave open the door. Is he going to be more involved? What's going to happen now between now and November 3rd? It's obviously something he deeply cares about. And we know his comments that he's made on the radio show and also on stage when he was doing Springsteen on Broadway. So we'll have to see what happens here in terms of what he's willing to do. But he has made it clear that he supports Biden and Harris. Unfortunately, since we're still in this pandemic, he's not he can't do rallies like he did in in, 2004, 2008 and 2012. Um, I guess he did one in 16. But hopefully there will be some some virtual fundraisers that will feature both that will feature the candidates, the top candidates, uh, Biden and Harris, as well as Bruce, you know, from uh, from Colesnack. I think that's very possible. And, you know, again, we'll have to see how he handles it. But it does seem like he's got something to say here. And and with that in mind, we turn to the archive release, which came out today (laughs) and. You know, again, these things are not coincidences. Uh, Today's archive release was the November 11th show from 2006 in London, a show where he premiered a song which, based on his comments, he had just written the night before, right? That's what he said in his comments. I thought it was just stuff he had written recently. I can't imagine that he would have played with Lucinda Williams uh, the night before, then come home, write a song, and then arrange it the next day at at Soundcheck, but... He is pretty amazing when it comes to that kind of creative process. Well, and it is a pretty amazing song. And of course, referring to Long Walk Home and not to be too heavy on the politics, but there's just, again, there's no way it's a coincidence that this is a selection for this month and that that is the statement. Uh, The version of Long Walk Home in this particular show has an extra verse, which was not on magic. And when you read that verse, some of it is when the party's over, when the cheering is all gone, will you know me? Will I know you? Will I know you? And then it returns to it's going to be a long walk home. Uh, that's pretty stark. And I, I think it's speaking very much to the country. Are we going to know ourselves at the moment when the current cheering is all gone for our president? Yeah, there's uh, it's funny that there's a you would think there were, these are just parallels, but I but listening to to Bruce talk about what was going on then, it was right after the 2006 midterms where the Democrats had actually taken over the House, the House of Representatives. Um, that just seems so that that administration just seems so quaint now compared to what's going on right now. But the, it's going to be a long walk home, and let's hope. Another very stark line that from the drop verse that was dropped. There's a hurricane on Main Street and I've got murder in my soul. Uh, you know, it's literally, I think, Bruce, that is, I I, I think, pretty much his current perspective. Yeah, not, I think to put, not to put words in his mouth, but uh, I, I think he's made it pretty clear. Seems to be a lot of people's perspective right now. And and to kind of take it away from politics for a second, but still staying staying on the focus of the song, I wonder if this verse ever made it to the studio with Brendan O'Brien in, in 2007. That is uh, an interesting question. And as we're going to hear when we talk to Brian, Brendan is very opinionated. He had very specific views on what to do with certain songs. And and maybe he's the reason the verse was cut. Maybe Bruce just decided this was not a verse when it came time to putting the album out that this was something he wanted to say because it is pretty dark. And I, and I do think the song is effective without it. So it's hard to say. Well, I mean, a couple of things is that this verse, 
at least in the way he played it in London on this at this show, it was kind of at, it was at the end of the song. Whereas once it made its E Street arrangement, or once once it received its E Street arrangement, by that point in the song, it was already they were pretty much cruising. The song was just rocking right out to the end. So it may just not have fit there. I mean, I guess they could have put it somewhere earlier in the song, but that wasn't the case. Um, and another thing is, I remember when I heard it for the first time, I, my wife had actually found it. She was surfing the web, and she found a recording of it, uh, a crappy audience recording. And I was laying on the couch half asleep, and she played it. And I, and I woke up, and I said, well, there's the title track from the next E Street album. And uh, it turns out Brendan O'Brien was really pushing Bruce to name the album Long Walk Home. Yes, yes. And, but he he said it's magic and don't ask me again. <laughs> yeah, Bruce was pretty definitive about that. I guess Brendan can be pretty, pretty persistent. And I guess Bruce was was tired of it. Now, should we talk a little about the rest of the show? Well, we, we should. It was it is a wonderful show. And it's I'm a big fan of the Seeker Sessions. You're not. I, I am not. That is true. <laughs> And now, in what, fact, I, I did hear a chunk of the show on E Street Radio today. It is the first, how many years has this archive series been going on? Um, I guess it started in 14. Yeah, so it's the first one I didn't buy on the first day. They did help me out, of course, by releasing The Long Walk Home in its entirety. Uh, and I did hear a, a, a bunch of the show on E Street Radio, as I said. And, and there's some good stuff in here. Obviously, he was doing more Springsteen originals at this point. I really do like the version of Atlantic City. The version of Devils and Dust is very good. Do I need to hear Froggy when according? <laughs> we won't go there. Well, I, m- I remember at the time you had said to me that the, you're a fan of, or you you emotionally connected to Bruce's songs, Bruce's lyrics and music, and there really wasn't a lot of Bruce or Bruce original stuff, especially early in the tour. Yeah, and so. But when he added more of the of his originals, uh, Atlantic City was there from the get go. But certainly, Long Time Coming, Jesus was yeah. an only son, and those were all excellent. They really devils, are. devils and dust. I think the the show's got got a lot better when he started adding more originals. I, I do will, think I will definitely you, say that. I do think if he ever wanted to do this again, the that is sort of the roadmap. If he was doing the songs in the nature of Devils and Dust and Long Walk Home and Jesus was an only son. And, and and like I said, Atlantic City, I think, is highly effective. I, I think that would work. Obviously, it didn't get a good reception here in the States. I was in the, uh, unfortunately not alone in not really, I think, connecting to this material. But, you know, it goes back to the episode that we were talking last time where uh, when I first heard Born to Run for the first time, even though I didn't fully understand that there was such a visceral connection that I had to it. And certainly as I got older and 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 the lyrics and themes on that record and certainly darkness and everything that has followed, that's where my relationship with Bruce is built. And you know, look, it, old Dan Tucker, the, I have no emotional connection to that song. And if if Bruce, if I had heard things in reverse and Bruce had put out old Dan Tucker first, you know, I don't know. Things might have been sitting different. here. Yeah, no, they might have been different. So, right. you know, look, not everyone's going to love everything that the man does. Uh, as as he is himself said, blind faith in your leaders. I think we can extend that to rock stars, uh, you know, is not <laughs> the greatest thing. And uh, obviously, I, I love with all my heart most of his work. But on the Seeger session stuff, I, I yes, I didn't connect to it. Yeah, well, 
see, I did actually because I remember my grandmother and my mother playing some of these songs to me when I was a kid, especially John Henry and, and Jesse James, and then even Froggy went courtin. I remember my grandmother singing that song to me when I was a kid. So when I heard Bruce do it, it was an extra emotional emotional bond. And, and I get that. And, and in some ways, it was it was such a departure from what Bruce was doing. Uh, I mean, it wasn't E Street. He didn't have any of the, for better or for worse, the E Street baggage on this yeah. tour. And I think you could really tell that that weight was lifted off his shoulders because he, he was really loose. Loose and having 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 the time of his life, basically. The one thing that I'll say is when you put the entire period in total, Devils and Dust, the Seeger Sessions, followed by Magic in three straight years, it is an incredible showcase of what the man can do and how diverse his musical abilities are. And 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 that's fantastic. But again, uh, you know, 2005, Devils and Dust, we've we've talked about that. I I really do like the album, even if it's uneven. I love the tour. Uh, and 2006, not so much. But <laughs> then, fortunately, 2007 came, and, and obviously Magic is a superb record. And that was a superb E Street Band tour. So you're not going to love everything. And I will get the show eventually. I will listen to the whole show just to hear it. Although I may skip the open all night. I do have to admit that. But let's move on to uh, from my home to yours, shouldn't we? Yes. And well, for a second, let me I'm going to put on my uh, you kids get off my lawn. Yeah. Uh, okay. Pants for a second. And here we are. Bruce isn't touring. And yet we have so much to talk about. And I and I between his radio show and this archive release and his involvement with the Democratic National Convention. It's like, where was this in 1991? <laughs> Well, when there was, was, where, where we was were in just, a totally different place in his life. Oh, I know, but just as a fan, it's it's like where it's even when he's off, he's still on. And that, and I'm just you know I'm just thinking back to those years where we did it, where just this, any mention in Rolling Stone where it was just a you know a, a frenzy. It seemed. It's one of those things. I think he's just much more comfortable now as an artist and with his ability to do stuff without overthinking it. And, and as people are going to hear, we did touch on this a little bit with Brian. So I, I don't know. I mean, I, but I'm yeah, really I, glad we've got the radio shows and, and this was a really good one. Yes, it was. He really, <laughs> he explored some of those uh, midnight rambler roots that, that uh, basically affected has affected his entire career in life. Yeah. You know me, I love the midnight hours and, we're all a little older now and perhaps we don't <laughs> spend as much time out in those hours, but he really did nail it. I, I, the songs he picked, especially his own selections. And this was a show very heavy on Springsteen material, much more so than some of the others. Yeah. And, and, and some unusual stuff too. breakaway from, from the promise and then sad eyes from tracks. Sad eyes was a really good selection. Yeah, it's one of those things where it's like, oh, my God, I, I can't believe he actually remembers that song. And I'm just thankful that he did. And, of course, this episode was titled In Dreams, and he included the Roy Orbison in Dreams. And it, it just he did. It was very hypnotic. It, it really I, I wanted to get out in my car and go listen <laughs> in the middle of the night because that was really what it felt like. That was it what did. he was going for. And, it, and he he hit it. Exactly. So, yeah, he he couldn't. He definitely conveyed a certain a feel with both 
or not with both, but with his voice and the stories and the background music that he played as when he was telling those stories and certainly, and then the song selections, as you said. He also, of course, played the Marianne Faithful song, which Mark Isham played on The Hawk, which (laughs) relates back to episode nine of his show when he and Patty were on. And apparently that is a song that has a lot of meaning for them, which we now know a lot about. (laughs) Well, it sounds like that whole Marianne Faithful album from the time was just it was in in their in their cassette cassette deck and then in Bruce's car. And he never took it out for, for all those trips up and back to the city. Yeah, we certainly know it seems a lot more about what was going on between (laughs) Bruce and Patty and what would probably date to either late 87 or early 88 than we ever thought we'd know. Well, and of course, we know from Carlin's book that they actually had a thing uh, on the first part of the USA tour in 1984. So there's definitely some off and on there. But referring to that that song by Marianne Faithful Faithful with Mark Isham – I always wonder who that was, Mark Isham, and because he played on with every wish. That's his trumpet on on, yes. on the Human Touch song, and I'm like, okay, now I, I see the connection here because he was really in love with this album, and he was all and Mark Isham was all over it, and he added he added Mark Isham added some really beautiful trumpet to with every wish. Oh yes, he did. It's it's a lovely song, as Bruce would say, and <laughs> I think with that we're. We wrap up our discussion of From My Home to Yours, and should we move on to our main event of the evening? Oh, yes, we should. This is going to be fun. So, all right. Tonight, we've got a very special guest that I want to introduce. This gentleman is a senior writer at Rolling Stone magazine, where he has written over 60 cover stories, the second most of any writer in the history of the magazine. And he's also the host of the Rolling Stone Music Now podcast, which can be heard on all major platforms, as well as SiriusXM's volume channel. And of course, he's also the author of one of our favorite books, Bruce Springsteen, The Stories Behind the Songs. We are thrilled to have him. Brian Hyatt, welcome to the show. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. It's an honor. I love the podcast. Oh, thank Thank you you so much. You don't know how much that means to hear you say that. Yeah, it means a lot. Now, before we get to the book, I'm just curious, out of all those cover stories, do you have any personal favorites? I mean, yeah, you know, and and some of them are, you know, I always point to some unexpected ones. Um, You know, obviously doing doing Bruce was obviously uh, amazing. Um, But, you know, the the ones I I tend to point to, uh, I did an Eddie Murphy one. And that was, you know, that for, for those of us of a certain age, like, you know, Eddie Murphy was an absolute god uh you, you know growing up and so uh just and you know and we did a very very like honest and in-depth interview at his house and we we, we bowled in his basement beforehand and there was something something particularly I, that one really stands out and I, I really like my one about uh about kiss uh and i was i've i never was growing up a kiss fan but uh i i there was so much drama in their story and uh, there was some and it was and it was also just kind of an honor to do bizarrely in the 2000s. I did Kiss's first and only Rolling Stone cover story. <laughs> That's so great. To, to sort of yeah, to sort of retroactively step in and remedy some rock history there was 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 pretty cool. So the, those are up there. I mean, there's there's definitely others. But, that I, you know, Rush was a big deal, too, just because they were another band that, you know, when I, especially when I was really young, were, were really meant a lot to me. All right. Well, spe- speaking of bands that you were fans, you were a fan of. Where does uh, where where does Bruce Frank was? Were you a fan of his way back, or is that more of a professional thing? No, I mean, yeah, no, I'm I'm 
uh, I, I, I'm uh, pretty much a lifelong uh, Springsteen fan. I'm, you know, from from the from the Jersey Shore. Uh, I, I first got into him, you know, when I when I really first got into Bruce was uh, probably around 1990, 91. So I was uh, in my teens, and I, you know, I'd actually been I'd actually been into him. Interestingly, I actually was a big fan of Born USA, just Born USA, when I was ten years old. Just uh, the, so- the song or the album? The album. The album. Okay. I had the cassette and I played it to death. Um, <laughs> but when I was ten years old, I wasn't. I, I mean, like to death. I, I when I went to summer camp and I was ten years old, I, I think I had that cassette and like the you know the Return of the Jedi story cassette possibly. And those were the <laughs> and those were the only ones I played all summer long. Um, but but I wasn't I wasn't really a music fan until I became a teenager. I, I didn't really get that deep into. To any particular music, so it, it didn't somehow that early fandom for Born USA didn't extend to like to literally anything else. I do remember being ten or eleven, and and my, I think my dad had a cassette also of Green's Raspberry Park, and I put it in for a second, and I was like, I was like completely <laughs> uninterested in it because it it because you know it, especially for a little kid, it, it's like it's completely on another planet from Born USA. Yes, oh, it is. There's yeah. no resemblance. So so I. I it, it, it meant nothing to me. Um, and then I, I think I've said this before talking about the, the book, but Prasma, I do ha- also have this very, very early memory of hearing Bruce's Santa Claus is coming to town probably when I was five or six. And for some reason, and, and it's one of those things where it might be an apocryphal memory, but I, but I do, I do remember, and this, again, it might be totally false. I do remember hearing it and really responding uh, to it. But anyway, I became a huge fan. I think my gateway to becoming a really big fan, interestingly, was the Christic bootleg. Um, oh. I somehow got a hold of that. And it, it was that in Nebraska. It was kind of like the, those two, when I was whatever it was, 14, 15 years old, um, there was something about the, the, the purity of solo acoustic Bruce that, that really, really drew me in to the next level of being a fan and and that's where I can I still you know I think that as 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 you two well know they they apparently talked about releasing that Christic tape as a, as a live album and uh, and of course they have since but it's different but they they could have released it in between in between Tunnel of Love and Human Touch Lucky Town and yeah. I, you know and, and there's a real power and uniqueness to that show but anyway from there on so from from fifteen sixteen on uh, I've I've been a, a you know a, Certainly a Bruce super fan. I, you know, I, I couldn't, uh, I, I can't hide that. <laughs> there's, 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 there's no doubt about it. Probably, honestly, I, I couldn't, uh, I can't, I, I, I can't ascend to the, the levels that, that I've heard you two talk about. I mean, I, I saw a bunch of shows, uh, you know, in 99, 2000, I, I, I saw a bunch of those shows, but I didn't travel from city to city. And that's really impressive, uh, th- you know, uh, that, that definitely supersedes uh, at least my, Maybe if I could have, I would have, but I, I wasn't. I wasn't. I saw every show I could where I was, but I, I wasn't, you know, traveling from town to town for the most and, part. Yeah, we had a lot of fun on that tour. <laughs> and, I, like and so were you you were living in the New Jersey, New York area for all that yeah. for all that time. Yeah. So um, yeah, I um, my I, I I grew up in Monmouth County. Oh wow. Uh, I, I was I was born in Manhattan, but I grew up in Monmouth County, and so. You know, and I saw, so I saw, um, I, I saw you did that show with, with Stan Goldstein and uh, talking about the short shows. I, I saw like, so that I saw Bruce um, at, this, at the Pony 
in 91 with a fake ID. Uh, <laughs> uh, I guess it was 91. It was, I believe, 91. Uh, it, it was with Southside, and he came out and played the Fever, and the crowd went that, so nuts that it was almost unsafe. Is it possible uh, that was in 1992, December 27th, might, 1992? We were just actually <laughs> talking about that show earlier. Actually, today. I, I think I think it was. I think it was probably 92. I, I yeah. think I think it was. Yeah, I, I'd have I'd have to. Uh, my colleague Andy Green would like thump me on the head, but I, I'm not like my I'm not that encyclopedic with 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 years. I I tend to get that stuff screwed up. But yes, it was. So that was. Uh, you know, it wasn't even it wasn't even that fun that particular Bruce uh, surprise appearance because it was it was overcrowded at the Pony. Sorry, if you've already just talked about the show, I won't even go into. No, it, we but, didn't actually need to touch on that one. But I yeah. was there, and I, yeah. interestingly, that I was there with Flynn's wife. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So that does sound. Uh, funny, and it was but... very very crowded in that place that night. Both Bruce and Bon Jovi played with Southside. That's right, and then and then 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 I guess I was I caught the tail end of the uh, the the show the 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 show at what, what uh, the Mars Club. Uh, oh where, yeah, where Dion was there. Yeah, that 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 famous show. But I but I only caught the end of it because I got a I got a tip that he was there, and, and I I didn't uh, I, I I didn't see the whole show. And then the same thing happened for the Count Basie 1993 show. Oh, uh, I was oh. home home from school, <laughs> and my my friend called me. And he was like, dude, it says in the Asbury Park Press, because this is actually what they did. They buried it deliberately on page like B12 of the press to get it out there, but not get it too out there that he was playing that night, uh, which sounds insane, but that's actually what they did. And he said, dude, like <laughs> Bruce is playing at Count Basie right now. And it was probably like, you know, I don't know, maybe it was like 8.20 p.m. and he had gone on at 8. And so, wow. said, you know, so I, I booked it over there and he had already played the acoustic set. I, I, I believe, I believe he had already, he would, he had either finished or was about to finish the acoustic set that I later learned had this hard land and everything. Yeah. I missed all that, but I did get to see Achy Breaky Heart. <laughs> and uh, just to connect it to the Kiss story, when, uh, when I was in Gene Simmons' house doing the Kiss story, for some bizarre reason, uh, Billy Ray Cyrus showed up. Showed and, up. <laughs> yeah. And, and he was, uh, he was just, I, 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 you know, I, I have no idea what he was doing there, but we were, we were chatting and I said, you know, do you know that Springsteen once did Achy Breaky Heart? And he did know that. He had been informed that. And he said, oh, yeah, that's one of the greatest things I ever. And I said, I was there the night he did that. And he was fascinated. He wanted to hear about it for about 10 to 15 minutes, every detail of how it happened. and everything. Oh, that so, was one of the most stunning things I've ever seen. And just in the manner in which he came up with it on stage and. As we always say, we really hope they have that one for an archive release. They probably don't, but yeah, well, we, we continue to hope. Yeah, we don't care if it's a, just like a two-track soundboard or even a mono <laughs> soundboard, as long as it's, you know, the audience recording of that night is not very good. So we no. just need any little bit of upgrade would be would be appreciated. That was a great show. In my memory, didn't he climb up pretty high on something and jump off? And that was probably the last time he ever did something like that. I feel like that, he did at that show. That yeah. I don't remember, but I actually have photos that I took that night that I haven't seen that buried somewhere in my house. Flynn and I happened to just be talking about this the other day uh, as a potential topic for this podcast. And uh, I got to go and look and see if I can find those photos. Well, I remember seeing pictures by Sue and Mon. They were legends on the Lucky Town Digest at the time. And uh, yeah, it looks like Bruce got up, got pretty high up on some speakers. I don't know if he jumped. Oh, that's right. That is right. Yes. Yeah. I don't know if he jumped, but uh, he I certainly... think I may have pictures of that too. I... I'll have to check. All right. I, I remember. I, you know, again, some of these memories end up being false, but 
my memory is that he 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 was so into it that he climbed up on something that was way too high, and then and did jump and halfway down <laughs> suddenly remembered he was in his forties, you know. Um, <laughs> but yeah, anyway. Well, let's get to your book because we could talk well, about it for several hours. So. Well, I mean, first off, we, we got to say that yeah, yeah, you're you're a big fan, and 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 I'm jealous of you, so. Uh, we got to go with that. <laughs> As we all know, they tend to be a tight-lipped operation. You got amazing access. I mean, you spoke to Bruce multiple times over a number of years, which uh, well, I know was also for the magazine. Uh, you you spoke to band members. You spoke to personnel in the studio, Clear Mountain, Plotkin, Annie Ello, Brendan O'Brien, assistant producers, uh, assistant engineers. How did you get this much access to get this level of information, which quite frankly really only appears in your book? Well, thanks. You know, I mean, well, first of all, I went into it, <clears throat> I went into it thinking that I would only do it if I could add something to the rest. That was kind of my mantra. I wanted to add to the historical record because I kind of knew, had a sense of what was out there. And, uh, and, and so just going in with that mission was the thing. And, and it, they, it was kind of an insane project because there wasn't enough time to get it done, really, uh, especially with a day job. And, it, and part of me, frankly, it was, such a, it was so hard to do all that reporting and writing so quickly that in retrospect, I don't know what I was thinking, even agreeing to do it, uh, <laughs> frankly. Um, but so, but but honestly, so starting, so I started just how everyone should start something like this is sort of from the outside in. And I think some of the some of the first people I spoke to were, you know, like the assistant. I was looking for people who hadn't spoken that much, so I, you know, that's where I got the the assistant engineer. On, on Greetings from Asbury Park, who had, to my knowledge, never done an interview in his life. And getting people like that is just a matter of finding them, you know? And right. so that's just like sort of reporting skills. And then so you start building up from that. You start talking to people and, you know, um, and, and and then reaching out within the camp. And, you know, the, so, I mean, the, the, the Bruce, you know, Bruce did not uh, do a new interview for this book. He he could have, that would have, but, but, you know, he, he um, but he had, he had talked to me several times over the years. And I would add the other thing that was really advantageous is I had my colleagues were so helpful. Anthony DeCurtis, who had interviewed mm -hmm. Bruce for tracks back in the 90s, had kept his transcripts and um, and generously, without asking for anything, immediately shared them for me. They were so old that Microsoft Word couldn't open them. I had to do all <laughs> these tricks to, it was like a version of Microsoft Word from like you know like like from the Flintstones days. Uh, so it took a lot of one of the hardest things was just opening uh, Anthony's ancient transcript. But when I got in there, there was stuff that Bruce had said about songs on tracks that had never been used anywhere. Um, so stuff like that, and all my colleagues uh, were were super helpful like that. So so I started with that base, and then then I just you know I I just kind of built from person to person. The first person who was really in the Mike Appel agreed early on, but again, he's not, you know, a current part of the, of the camp. But the first person, the first person, you know, sort of really within the inner circle who agreed to talk to me was, was uh, Chuck Plotkin. Mm, and, yeah. uh, and Chuck, and that wasn't because anyone told him to. It was, it was you know, I, I, I reached out to him. I sent him the link to my uh, 2016 Bruce interview. He liked the interview. Um, he, you know, and he felt like reading the interview thought about it and felt like, you know, that he could talk to me. 
uh, and the, you know, and Chuck and I really, really talked a lot. We talked. Um, I've told the story before, but one night, he, uh, you know, I was after work. I was talking to him, and I, I talked for, you know, we talked for at least four hours in a row, maybe six hours, just like talking, talking. And we talked so much that I actually, I was in the same position in my chair for so long that I like had a leg cramp for a week. Uh, like, like it was like, but I mean, that was, and you know. And that's when I realized that a lot of these people have that same stamina that Bruce and focus that Bruce has. That's how they got into the circle. They had this almost inhuman ability to dig in and, and focus and focus and focus. And, uh, and, and that said, I, I think I learned early on with Chuck and with other people that one of the hardest things about doing a book like this is that people's memories of recording albums don't break down by song. <laughs> they don't necessarily remember anything in particular about that particular song. They have general stories about the album that you have to try to kind of. <laughs> so that's really, really tricky, especially ones. I mean, like the river was kind of a nightmare, but but basically, uh, Chuck. I think that basically the the long, long, long interviews with Chuck, and he basically done interviews for two other books, which was Dave Marsh's and uh, and, and my friend Peter Carlin's book. Mm -hmm. And I think that basically opened the door to the started opening the door to the rest of the interviews. And it was like, it just was like a series of doors opening. And, uh, you know, and, and, it, and the, I think the last door opening was, was Max Weinberg, who just oh. one day after, after months of, after months after I originally uh, reached out to him, my, my phone rang with a New Jersey number. Uh, and it was either, you know, my, it, it was either something to do with my parents or, or it was going to be a member of the East Street Band. And it was, in fact, a member of the East Street Band. And uh, it was Max. And he said he wanted to talk, you know, and, and we and, uh, and and Max probably talked for like six, six hours or something. Like he that. really re he really remembers everything, it seems. Yeah, I was going to ask if he's like the unofficial ar band archivist there. He pretty clearly is and he has he i hope will write the book he has in him because he really he not only remembers everything but he seems to have documentation that i didn't really you know get into but he I, you know that I, I didn't get to utilize but i think you know he he god knows what diaries tapes rehearsal you know like he he well, he has he has a mother i know where sure. flynn is going he, he and i are on the same <laughs> track here flynn go ahead yeah well it said that uh in the book he, he he said he has 70 hours of recordings of rehearsals just from 76 and 77 yeah so i mean i mean i'm sure there, by the way i'm sure these recordings are not so good like oh, 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 I, oh, I, oh yeah yeah. Well, believe me, I, I am totally yeah. aware that most most of them sound like those lost master, uh, um, whatever the, right. the rehearsals from there. I mean, I, I, right. I have no illusions that they sound like they were recorded at the record plant, but it's just that <laughs> those seventy hours, I can't imagine how many songs came and went in, in that time absolutely. frame. And, absolutely. And then absolutely. And, and then he, I think, then uh, I mean, how how noted that. He has he has the, the tapes of like Election Nebraska in somebody's living room, right? I I believe you know I remember I, I believe he said that yeah I believe I believe so yeah 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 um, yeah <laughs> Max Max has the best uh, Max is the ultimate Uber collector I guess in the oh. end like, like <laughs> all right Max we all right how we got to get Max on all right <laughs> well <laughs> yes. While we're talking about Max, 
there was in, in your book in the entry for out in the street they talked about Max talked about having when Bruce sat him down and, and said you got to get your stuff together what was he what was he not doing well what was he messing up so I think it was just a, a simple technical issue of having to be a metronomic timekeeper while playing wildly energetic rock and roll in the studio and the truth is many people who play live as much as Max did and does were often replaced by studio drummers in part on record in part because when you're playing live especially in the days before click tracks on stage and all that stuff your sense of time flows you're not supposed to play like a metronome you're following the band leader you're following what's happening so you're not playing in that strict click track metronomic time and in fact you train yourself not to but then you get in the studio where everything has to be perfect and it's brutally hard especially if as in the case of the way the East Street Band was recording back then you're playing take after take after take after take and of course you're going to start to drag your feet up a little bit so that was you know they 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 read him a bit of the riot act but you know Max rebuilt his his chops from the inside out and you know he's uh and i think i think in his telling he's uh, all the better musician for it right and then of course when he uh, started playing on late night with conan i mean he was playing five nights a week which which i believe you mentioned as well because uh, when they started recording again he was so much better well and a diversity of acts he played with on conan as well it That's wasn't right. just yeah right so he really branched out just beyond uh, just beyond bruce's stuff now, uh, before we get to some of the other stories in the book, I did want to ask about the layout of the book, because the book is really gorgeous. Uh, the way it's put together, obviously, all the information is great, but also the way it's presented, uh, the, uh, the the photos and everything, it's really, really well done. How, do, how was that put together? And you said you had a fairly short time to do it, so that makes it seem even harder. Yeah, I mean, I, all credit to the, the British publisher, um, the, uh, they, they weren't perfect. There were some uh, copyrighting glitches that I that I'm a little irked at them for, quite frankly. But <laughs> but but uh, but that said, uh, they, they did a pretty nice job with the the photos, and, and I, I you know that was fairly out of my hands. And I, I I like I like almost all of the all the ones they use, and there's some that are there's some that are that are pretty pretty rarely seen, and that's cool. And it's, yeah, tri it was, it's tricky because it, it's tricky because there's a lot of very familiar photos of Bruce, obviously. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what what caught my eye was I, you had a couple of photos from Landover, Maryland, in '88, which was my which was my second show, and then you even had wow. a, a backstage photo from from Baltimore in, in 2009. When it's and those are those are not two shows we often see represented in in any in any books or or anything really. Yeah. Well. Uh, yeah. I was. I was. Uh, in that, for the most part, I was pleasantly uh, pleasantly surprised. I certainly okay. my role in that was was you know like in the first version of the layout, I'd be like, you cannot use that picture, like things like that, more than more than uh, more on the vetoing side rather than the finding side, if you know what I mean. Okay, I got you. <laughs> totally understood. Uh, yeah. Let's let's go ahead and go into the book. Let's go back to the beginning with go with, go with greetings. Um, you mentioned that that Clive Davis came, said to him that you need a single. He didn't have a single, and so that resulted in "Blinded" and 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 "Spirit," and you and you mentioned a song that no one's that I had never heard of before called "The Chosen." Do you know any more details about that song? 
people have asked me about that, but I believe that that Mike Appel mentioned that, and there is other, there, there is other, uh, you know, in this in this case, I wish I wish I had uh, I wish I had my own footnotes, but that there is there is other there's other reference to that. I mine mine was not the first reference. I did find it referenced other places. I I, I would have to look up exactly where, but yeah, it apparent it, it apparently exists. We'll find okay. out someday, maybe. <laughs> All right, and hopefully it's hopefully it's better better than visitation at Fort Horn, which you did not like. <laughs> I I I find that I you know people tend to you know people tend to um, rhapsodize over missing songs like that and imagine that you know I, I I'm not. I, I don't know. Do you like that song? It doesn't do much for me personally. Yeah, I I, yeah it's not. It doesn't do much for me either. Right. Well, well, that kind of well leads to a, another question: is that you you weren't yeah. shy with expressing your opinion? Yes, that is that's <laughs> wonderful that you actually gave your opinion on all these songs, including our namesake, "None But the Brave," which apparently you're yeah, not sorry a fan about that. of. I, I was, I, I, you know, I, I may I may have been too harsh. I mean, part of um, well, look, you know, I would say. That I didn't intend it to be a super opinionated book, honestly. Um, if you read the the Clinton Halen, uh, yes, he's books, very opinionated. Which, yeah, he, yes, and and I will say that uh, you know what was most valuable, especially for me, was that he actually got the Sony uh, recording records, um, so so that that helped me really put the chronology in place of you know, especially it really helps for the '80s stuff because it's all over the place. But so he did a tremendous service. He he has great sources at in the Columbia vaults or wherever the hell they are. So you know what what was recorded on what day. I would say compared to Clinton Halen, it's like this the the I, I think I hit the gold standard of, of, of objectivity. He he was like you know he his his uh, his whole thing that that you know basically nothing was good after while the innocent is. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's a bit. That's a bit rough. Obviously, we would feel that way if you yeah, listen to the show. That's a bit harsh. <laughs> I, but you know, I think part of you know to to be to to be you know totally honest, I, I the the writing uh, because I spent so much time of the a lot of time talking to all these people and doing all the research is the writing happened very fast and uh, and I think some of my opinions just kind of like just just zoomed in there and and possibly may. Possibly a bit too many. I, I feel bad. people seem to be bummed out by what I said about none but the brave. Uh, my my point, my point, really is just that I thought it was interesting that what I always kind of thought about that song was also what Chuck Plotkin thought about it at the time. That that's really what's what's kind of interesting to me is yeah. to him that it was it was forced, you know. But but I also I also recognize. I, I certainly recognize why people love it, and I, I feel bad that, that that I enough people have have commented on it that that, that, uh, that and you and you guys did go so far as to name your show after the <laughs> after the song. So so perhaps I unnecessarily hurt people's feelings. Oh, you didn't hurt our feelings. Don't worry about that. Yeah, some people though. Yes, our feelings are not hurt. I, I had a friend who did say it was the most cliche-filled Springsteen song of his entire career, uh, talking about bars <laughs> and guitars and. <laughs> dance floors and it just you know it's just it's i mean as was it plotkin said it just sounded forced right um and i you know i can kind of see that but it's still something I, I i really enjoy well that's the most refreshing thing i found about your book in terms of the info you got because 
you got people very close to Bruce giving you honest opinions in ways that I'm not sure we've seen before. Brendan O'Brien is probably the leading candidate of that, where, I mean, he really gave you very unvarnished assessments of some of the songs, like Outlaw Pete. He, he didn't hold back, no. No, Bre- you know, Brendan, look, Brendan doesn't give a shit. Brendan has a lo- had, a, had a lot of success. I think he probably, you know, I think he had a sense that his time with Bruce is, is uh, you know, probably over. And I, you know, I, and I think, I, I think he had, you know, and I, I think I've had that talking to him, with, talking with him about Pearl Jam and other bands. Like, you know, he's a, he's an opinionated guy. He's like, you know, he's worked with a lot of people. And, and when the artists push in a direction that he's not crazy about, he has lingering, you know, some lingering frustration. I mean, that said, to be very clear, I mean, he, you know, he has, you know, untold respect for Bruce. Oh, I'm sure. Um, and he did a great but, job. I mean, The Rising is a masterpiece. Right, right. But there you go. And I mean, yeah, he was he was funny about Let's Be Friends, uh, Brendan. And, and, and funny, I like I like Let's Be Friends more than Brendan O'Brien does. So there you go. That's one. And also I, Mary's Place, where he says, Bruce says to him, can we make this song sound like the other tracks and pro uh, Bryant says, he says to him, uh, probably not. <laughs> yeah. He wasn't, I, I like the fact that he wasn't shy about, about sharing his feelings. Uh, you know, I think as Hal said to me that, uh, he needed, Bruce needed him more than, more than he needed Bruce. I think at that point he probably, uh, that is probably true. Yeah. That gave, and that gave him some freedom to, to really do to really to really say whatever the hell he wanted. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Well, the other thing is, I mean, you you say when they first met after the rising that it wasn't part of O'Brien's plan for months of tortured debate and introspection, which as we know, Bruce can go down that hole. So oh Brendan did a great job in the records that he worked with, it sounds like, making sure that didn't happen. Well, I also I think it was it was Brendan, and I also think it was where Bruce was. I think that the younger Bruce had that tortured thing going on, you know, and that and wanted to sit around talking about lyrics and should this verse be there and stuff for you know for days at a time. But I think that maybe by, by the time the 21st century rolled around, you're talking about a you know a, a certified rock legend who's a lot older and a lot more confident. And I think he was just in a different place. So I think it was kind of like the two met, at, the, the two things met at, the, at, at that time. The, the two things that needed to be there were, were there. Bruce was ready to change and he had someone who wanted to work in that different way. Well, and it also sounded like at Sony, they knew that Bruce needed a little bit of a push. I think it was Donnie Einer that recommended Brendan O'Brien, right, Flynn? Yes, yes. Yes, and that was after the the March two thousand one sessions. That I guess you in the book you call them the pre rising sessions because they went in, they recorded according to Bruce's book eight songs, but it didn't have, it wasn't what they what they wanted to do, or it didn't sound like they wanted it to, to sound, which is why they brought in the outside producer. That's what right. It, and Chuck, Chuck has some memories of those, you know, and they they included uh, my city of ruins was definitely included, um, and and that and he. He'll, he maintains that the version they record, oh, I mean, of course, he would, I mean, obviously he would say that, um, but he feels that the version that they recorded in those sessions is better than the one on the album. It'd be That's very interesting to hear. Interesting. That is interesting. And then, and they also recorded Land of Hope and Dreams during those sessions too, right? I believe so, and I believe American Skin as well. Okay. Yeah. Well, 
so it's funny that they had that version of Land of Hope and Dreams, and then when they finally went to put it on an album with Wrecking Ball, they just totally redid it. Do you know what the thinking was there? Actually, I, you know, I will stop myself. I It is reasonable to assume that they recorded Land of Hope and Dreams. I would assume so. Offhand, I don't remember. They, they almost certainly did. I just, I don't know. But I, it, I assume that they, they had to have. Basically, it, like, that was what, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. It seems like it, that makes sense. That they yeah, would. I, I think the, but I think the idea of talking to Ron, I do remember Ron saying, it's so funny, like I don't remember what's in the book and what isn't in the book, but Ron, <laughs> Ron did, Ron did oh. tell me, I think this is in the book, but, but Ron told me that, uh, you know, they listened once to the live version of uh, Land of Hope and Dreams, and then we're basically like, we can't listen to that again because it's too good. Yeah. Like we, oh, it will daunt us. But oh, think, yeah, I, that was great. That, yeah. that is in the book. That's in yeah. the book. Okay, yeah. yeah. Okay. So I think the idea, my, my understanding is the idea was, you know, Wrecking Ball is not, although it can be a little confusing, as as you know, it's not an issue band album, and it's, um, you know, and and I think they wanted to make a version that fit in with the, whatever that Wrecking Ball vibe was, which is you know a little more modern, had all the samples, loops, and drum machines. So I think they were trying to make a version that that fit with that. Um, and I'm always fascinated by, you know, like when you watch the East Street Band try to play a rearranged song like that and, and the, the, just the, the look of the, the extent to which it seems like a bit of it always seemed like a bit of an effort to play the new version. Yes. Uh, when I when I looked at their at their faces. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm glad that version exists, though, personally. Oh, I, I, I do, too. I actually I'm one of the few people who seem to to like it as much as the as the original so we jumped ahead to modern times already but we <laughs> i i definitely don't want to skip over because you had information in the book which it seems like you're a loyal listener of the show which we appreciate we basically uh based an entire episode on on this little piece of information that in 1994 and well it was 1995 when he started recording jode that they did, you got from Marty Rifkin that Bruce yes. basically was recording two separate projects at the same time, one during the day and one at night. The one during the day is a, a Western swing project that still is unheard to this day. What did you think when you heard that? And what else did you learn about it? I, I believe that, you know, I heard about that from some of the other mus uh, musicians as well. And we know, of course, I mean, the, 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 the giveaway is that song Tiger Rose, mm -hmm. uh, w w which we know they recorded at that time. And, and, uh, and uh, Gary gave to the rockabilly artist whose name is escaping me at this very second. But, but that's, <laughs> you know, so but but yeah, no, I mean, I, I, it, it's it's extremely tantalizing. And I, I thought I love the way Marty painted the picture because I really, really, really could see it. Because what, what's what's really cool is I always felt that that goes to Tom Jodas. I think that and Darkness are the two Bruce records where you kind of hear a room, uh, where you you actually hear a physical place where the music is happening. Uh, I would say it's not all of Darkness, but on on something in the night, you really if you listen on you know on, on super great headphones or in a really great stereo, you you have that sense of a physical space the way that you do. Uh, on a great jazz album, a well-recorded jazz album. So I always kind of felt like I, that Ghost of Tom Joe was like a physical space you could visit, especially on the title track is so magnificently recorded and so three-dimensional on, on, on great equipment. But anyway, I mean, Marty took us into that room a little bit and made, made me understand that the, 
Ghost of Tom Joad material was the nighttime material. And there was this whole other set of material that was the daytime material, uh, and which is very tantalizing. And the other, by the way, uh, Long Time Coming, I believe, was a, was, a, was a daytime song. You know, so it's not all kind of rockabilly stuff. It was, or Western, Western Swing. Long Time Coming was, and it, they, everyone was really fuzzy on the details of this, but the version of Long Time Coming that was released is a altered version of what was recorded, I believe, during during the uh, Joad sessions. That, that makes that sense. Was, that was what I came away with. Though everyone got a little, like everyone's a little fuzzy on it. But there's, I forgot how that was kind of figured out. But it has to do with who was credited. There's people. I mean, anyway, it's pretty clearly that they 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 started with the base of what was recorded in in the Joad uh, sessions. You dropped in another tantalizing detail yeah. when writing about that, <laughs> that the record, the Western Swing record was finished in 2018, which, as you know, we talk about a potential box of unreleased albums and, and lost outtakes that they may be working on. It sounds like that could be a part of it. What did you find out about why they were finishing this record in 2018 that had been recorded in 1995? Yeah, it certainly it certainly raises some questions. Uh, let's put it that way. Uh, I I happen to have been told, and not not for some reason not off the record, someone let that slip. Um, and uh, so you know, draw your own conclusions. That's all I can draw because I don't know. I, I don't factually know why that was the case. Uh, or why they were doing that. And in fact, at the, at the time, it was truly baffling. It does, it did end up matching some rumors that you hear, that are floating out there. So that, uh, but I'm not even being cute or coy here. Oh, that's all, that's, that's, I, I, you know, it's like I put in that fact because I knew that fact. I knew that that people like yourselves would, would might, might seize upon it. I don't know what it means. I just know that I was told that by, a, by someone who would know. Well, um, well, so, well, go let, ahead. Let, let, me, yeah. let me follow up on that. Did you get the impression? <laughs> I mean, did this associate tell you that it had been worked on post the Joad era or was it actually finished in 95? Well, so what we know is that it, we, again, I'm, I'm not I'm not giving new information. I'm just adding up dots that are already there. Right. So uh, Br Bruce told um, my colleague Andy Green, this was published. That he has a bunch of like sort of half finished albums that he's always tinkering with. Yes, one um, is the relationship record that we constantly hear about. <laughs> right. And we want right. to ask you about that one too. <laughs> the, 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 the hip hop, I, I guess the relationship record is the same as the hip hop record. I, I, I always forget, but the, the, I think that's the same record. That's, the one with that's, the, that's my theory. I, I, yeah. I don't have I any backing same, of the it. The hip hop record is, yeah, the hip hop record is not a hip hop record, obviously. Uh, it's, you know, it's not. It's, Especially now, no one would, I'm sure, whatever is on it. Because if you assume that missing is emblematic of the sound, which I do assume, uh, th th then it's not really a, you know, a hip-hop record. Come on. But, um, <laughs> but, but, but yeah, so, I, so anyway, so I, I believe that I just matched it up with what Bruce said about that he's been tinkering with stuff for a long time. And he may well, for all we know, he may have had stuff mastered just to, you know, have it in his pocket for real. You know what I mean? Like he's, he's, he, it's not like, it's not like he's someone like him is sitting around like, gee, can I afford to get this thing I finished mastered if I'm not releasing it for a long time? You know, he, he might just, he might very well just like, you know, the Ark of the Covenant at the end of Bridge of the Lost Ark. It, it may be just so he can file it away for real. And I'm not being, you know, that, that may genuinely be the case. Well, we well, hope that's not the case, but we'll see soon enough. Yeah. <laughs> 
And then yeah. and then going going back to the hip hop album, I guess because it wasn't released, you never you never talked to anybody who, who was involved with with that album, such as the musicians from the ninety two ninety three band. Well, it's funny actually. I I, I actually wanted to talk to um, to Tommy Sims uh, because I wanted to get there were a couple things. Uh, I, I guess I guess uh, there, there's a couple things he kind of played on. And had I talked to him, I would have I would have uh, asked him about some of this stuff, even though even though it's it's not strictly speaking in the book. Uh, but he and he wanted to talk, and he had some personal issues going on. It was super apologetic, and it just he's one of those guys who I think you know I think a week after the book went to the printer, he was like, oh, I could talk now, and it's like I was like someday, you know. <laughs> mm. <laughs> well, but uh, but so you know he just it it just slipped through the cracks. Um, but but yeah, no, that that would have been someone who could. Who could lend some information? I also was curious about what he may or may not have done on versions of Streets of Philadelphia that were not released. That was the other thing I'm, I was super, I'm super curious about. Um, so because he's not on, I, I don't. I think he does. I, this is this is actually one of those things that gets super confusing. But he may he may have recorded at least backing vocals for Streets of Philadelphia. He may, may have played on an unreleased version. I can't remember. But anyway. Well, I know he he was uh, like what credited with being a, even a co-producer of Gypsy Woman, if I'm remembering correctly. That's right. That's okay. right. That's right. So that and that was around the same time as well. Correct. Yes, and he was definitely he was definitely yeah he was he was working with, and I believe that that's the relate right. So that's the ninety two ninety three band was playing on the the hip hop slash relationship album that, that we right. that we believe to be the same thing. Anyway, right. Secret <laughs> C- Garden missing. Uh, Waiting right. on the end, end of the world, that kind, that kind of stuff. Exactly. All right. So, so going back to the 92, 92 material, anyway, you had a really cool, cool line about Bruce was talking. Bruce was talking to Anthony to the Curtis this time, and after when the tracks was released, about how he felt that there were some songs that would have, that should have gone on the record, that didn't. But it ended up on tracks disc four. Did he, did he ever mention any specific titles? That he felt that way about. I don't believe so. Are we talking about the like the bass songs on Human Touch at this point? Is that what we're? <laughs> I, yeah, I think so. I think that's what he seems yeah. to be referring to in your now, hold in on the here. interview. A, hold on here. Hold on here. Hold on. It's it's under the sad eyes section. Okay. He said, "I think Bruce uh, Bruce told Anthony to the Curtis. I think probably the majority of the fourth CD is as good or better than the record that I ended up putting out." He's likely right, but. Um, it's more interesting in some ways. A lot of that material may get closer to what I was actually trying to write about in the record I put out at the time in some fashion. <laughs> he had to throw the in some. No, that was that was in the book. That's, 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 that's the quote. That's yeah. The quote. No, no, Bruce himself had to throw it in at that point. Um, but yes. Um, yeah. No, I mean, I, I think I think he's, you know, I, I think I think he's talking about, uh, I mean, you know, stuff like stuff like. Going Cali is so interesting because it, it it really is this this like pivot between Human Touch and Lucky Town. Uh, there's something at least lyrically, especially yes, you know, definitely it, lyrically. It, it, it's 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 really 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 interesting. And and then uh, uh, yeah, all, those those songs are really good. Like Loose Change, that song. That's I mean that's a great song. And that again, that is I'm just quoting, but that really is all of a sudden you can see the door opening. T- to Jode, you know, I mean, it's, it's, he wasn't writing like that mostly at that time with all that detail. Right. Um, the, yeah. So, the details are amazing. 
but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, and then, then a lot of the, it is some of the choices as usual are a little confusing. Like why, why put on Gloria's eyes and leave off seven angels? <laughs> you yeah. know, I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't really get it, but you know, I, I think uh, that and, there's a lot of it, cases like that. Yeah. You know, and a word, it, that particular replacement would have just been one for one without anything changing. He would have probably even opened the second set in, in 92 with, with seven angels instead of Gloria's eyes. And right, would have, exactly. no, nobody would have known the difference. <laughs> it's one of those, those rare parallel earths where you could make a change in, and nothing else would change. It's the opposite right, of a Exactly, that's right. right. Well, <laughs> well, I think what's, where the bands are and out in the street kind of have the same relationship, No. That's 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 true. That's Which true. I, I believe. I mean, you you it's in you you mentioned it in the book. So uh, right. I think I think I heard it elsewhere. But it's you know, and then out in the street becomes the legendary lost track, and where the bands are becomes oh god, where the bands are again. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, if if he'd never that's released how fandom Bobby is exactly. If he'd never released Bobby Jean, fans would be begging him to play it every night. That's for sure. <laughs> Yes, that, that is true. Also about Human Touch and Lucky Town, I, and I was interested because it seems like he told you this in 2016, that you were talking about the relative lack of success that Human Touch and Lucky Town had at the time mm. they were released, and, and Bruce is talking to you and he says that it wasn't really their time, meaning him and 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 the group of songs, and that's just how it works, and it was obviously the time of Nirvana and all that stuff. But what I'm curious about is what it, what why were you talking to him in 2016 about <laughs> these topics, uh, and uh, you know what is it like in general just talking to him and trying to get this information, which mm. he doesn't really talk this specifically a lot of the time uh, in interviews. He doesn't do a lot of long form interviews where he, he answers these types of questions. That's interesting. I mean, you, you, well, you can go and read, you know, I, I, I've actually printed, you can actually probably find, I, I think there was a bonus Q&A that I put out from the 2016 cover story where you can actually see it in context. But I think it basically is because we were talking about the book. You were talking about his book. Right. <laughs> you were talking about Born, <laughs> we were talking about Born to Run, and that opened the door to a lot of, uh, that was that was actually, you know, that was a really cool interview to get to do to talk about the book because it really opened the door to like a, a very wide ranging set of topics, you know, because you're essentially talking about his whole life, life and career. So that, you know, in retrospect, it's like, oh, this is, you know, it, it really is great because it, it just it just, you know, doors wide open. And I, I don't don't remember the exact I think I probably was presenting something that he said in the book about it to him. And yeah, he did. He, he did remark on that in the book. Yeah, so that that's probably. I'm sure it was just in, in the context of, oh, oh, here's what you said in the book. I don't remember the exact question, but that that kind of thing. So you know, it was you know, and I, I think I, I remember telling him, you know, you know, uh, that I had uh, that that I remember having the the Nirvana tape and the Human Touch tape, you know, next to each other in my car at the time. I, I don't <laughs> understand, but I don't, I don't think he cared very much. But, but <laughs> no, it was, they. I mean, you were a big Bruce fan and it was just his first new album from him in three and a half years and or four and a half years rather. And then, but, but then grunge was basically exploding. They exploded in the fall of 91. And, you know, I always wondered if he had released Human Touch in say July of 91, how could, would it have done better commercially? Quite, quite possibly. And it's also like, 
you know, it's just, it's, it, it, he was, he was so much in the shadow of Born USA at that time still, you know, really? it, it, it it, 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 that's what I, I mean, I, that's what I remember. I remember, I remember in my high school uh, that he was kind of the Born USA guy and that there was not a lot of, there was not overwhelming interest for the new Bruce Springsteen in the, right. <laughs> at that time. And I remember, I, you know, there were other people excited about the new Nirvana, but there weren't a ton of people uh, super excited who were, who were 18 years old and super excited for Human Touch and Lucky Time. That, that I can tell you. <laughs> Well, you nailed it, especially Human Touch. There's a certain sterility to it that, and especially coming after the Christic shows, because as you just, as you pointed out earlier in the show, the tapes had circulated. You know, when I heard Soul Driver for the first time on the album compared to what had been played at the Christic, I I was just shocked that 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 stark song had become sort of this bouncy (laughs) sort of uh i I don't even know what you would call it but uh and it's not like i hate the version on the record but it's nowhere near as effective as the version played at the christic and of course that also applies to real world which you do mention in the book and i do think bruce himself has come to realize later on that's right yeah he he definitely did I mean that one is—it's not like a, a stretch to say that the, the, the studio version didn't didn't exactly uh, didn't exactly hit. Uh, that's that's and and it is it is start. I mean it's rare that you get the opportunity as a fan of an artist to you know it's possible if no one had ever heard the Christic version, uh, you know that song completely dismissed by the fandom as just you know not just not one of his best songs, whereas. Given that we have the blessing of hearing that raw version, I think the the, the people realized that it, it was just a you know not not the greatest arrangement on the on the record. No, and it seemed like if Roy, when he was talking, he was a little defensive about that because he's <laughs> like the song wouldn't exist if I if it hadn't been in that arrangement to begin with because it existed before. That, that's right. That, down Christic version. No, no, he's absolutely he's. He's absolutely right. It, it, you know, and that's that right. That's that, that's a, the very important and essential point that that Roy made is like, look, you know, he like you may not like that arrangement, but Bruce wrote the song to that and then subsequently stripped it down. So it's a, it's all very very confusing, of course, because <laughs> because the the you know even fa- you know hardcore fans had that bootleg before the album came out, as you well know. Uh, so, but it's confusing. Yes, his version was the original. It doesn't mean it was the best, though. Sorry, no. Roy. And actually, I want to ask another question question about Roy. And in the section on Thunder Road, you were talking about, you talked with Roy, and he said that the, the coda at the end of the song was really a collaboration. Um, but yet the, yet every song is, of course, credited to just Bruce Springsteen. And was there any any kind of like resentment that they would help in the studio, would come up with, with arrangements or whatever, and then Bruce gets all the credit? You know that I mean I, I think that's really interesting. I think that uh, he he certainly would not express that. Uh, you know if uh, I, yeah, I, you're think right. that, I think I think that he you know look he's had uh, decades of very lucrative employment and I think a lot of times I didn't really I truly didn't get into publishing credits with anyone. It just didn't, it wasn't uh, what, what was kind of a, a field from my topic, but. One could, you know, generally, for the most part, musicians don't get credited for those kind of things. I would say is 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 the is more common than not 
to not get that credit if they help to, you know, if they help compose a coded or something. A lot of times they don't get credited, especially if they're in that position. And a lot of times that's just sort of the unspoken deal. Sometimes it's a spoken deal. I really don't know. But, you know, one could make that argument or one, you know, or, or he can just say like, geez, you know, I mean, in the end, the song wouldn't exist without Bruce and it wasn't a, it. And they weren't in the business of carving it up and being like, well, Steve suggested this little bit. So Steve gets 10 percent of the song. I think I would imagine perhaps, you know, and actually I don't want to overspect it, but, you know, it could be just like, look, the, Bruce gets the song on credit. We're, we're not even going to start with that. You know, because what I would argue, actually, you know, that once you open the door to that, you're probably sorry. Because then everyone's like, "Well, I wrote that drum intro," you know, uh, and then uh, then, and then you, yeah. then you end up then then you end up everyone's fighting over the pieces, and maybe it's just better be like, "You're on salary. It's a great salary. I write the songs. Don't worry about it." Yeah, <laughs> you know, okay. I, you 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 can, because I mean, you know, I, and now I'm speaking totally afield from from Bruce because again, this isn't something I've ever discussed with anyone. But I mean, if you look at the history of of bands that are more like bands as opposed to an, an artist with a backing band. You know, there's band after band after band that had bitter splits over fights over publishing and credit. And so maybe it's just simpler and knowing be like, no matter what, look, you know, like, look, for the most part, Bruce is just getting this credit. You know, like, just don't worry about it. Just assume that and do your best. Okay. Um, you know, but that said, I mean, Roy does have credit uh, for the Human Touch stuff. That yes. He, uh, yeah. Well, so, well, that stuff, it sounds originated. like it. Yeah. It, yeah. It originated with him. Now, okay. this has been so amazing, and we don't want to wear out all welcome with you. I do have a couple of things that we have to hit on before we sure. let you go. The I just realized this today in reading the book again, and we spent a lot of time talking about American Skin over a couple of episodes. Yeah. It turns out you're the reporter who called <laughs> Bob Lucente president of the Fraternal Order of Police and got the immortal, immortal quote that he made about american skin do you want to tell that <laughs> i'm the guy uh that's I, I, actually the, the you know before i tell the the real kicker of the story is um at the taping to when elvis costello did the spectacle taping with bruce i don't know if either of you managed to make it in I, there i was there uh, yes okay so you know and as you know that that went on for i would say maybe six to seven hours <laughs> <laughs> it, it was a long night, yeah. But, but, but maybe, but you know, like there was a lot of stuff that didn't make the show, and it went on. You know, it was probably two, three hours, whatever. But but um, but Elvis asked Bruce about that in detail, and Bruce literally said, you know, uh, you know, I think it was a slow news day, and someone called until they got the best quote they wanted, or something like that. And I'm sitting there, and I said, yeah, that was that was someone did. That was me. Um, but <laughs> but you know, it really is really simple. Like basically, um, I had so yeah, I was at SonicNet. And um, this rather extreme police union, the Fraternal Order of Police, which is really a, a, an angry right-leaning police union as opposed to the other, I guess, left-wing police union. <laughs> but this, but these, these guys were, 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 you know, were and I guess are pretty, pretty fierce um, and, and somewhat extreme. So they, were, they had this thing they kept adding before this. They had this boycott list. They kept adding everyone, all these artists on <laughs> boycott list they added rage against the machine and a bunch of other people and i, I you know I, this guy loved to talk to the press so i would you know i I'd already talked to him several times about you know him raging against rage against machine and, and this <laughs> stuff so so when this thing happened with bruce I, you know i had the person to call uh and, and you know i expect him to just feel like he's added to the boycott list but instead he you know basically went nuts you know <laughs> he, he i mean he was really angry you know, and he, he he sputtered all this stuff, and and uh, and so yeah, and then it 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 uh, and it ended up really kicking the whole thing up. I mean, th 
to be very clear, there was already a controversy. Some New York, uh, some some New York police officials had already complained, but in a more measured fashion. So it had already been in the New York Post and stuff. But right. it was it was it was still. So, but what happens, I called this guy and he kicked it up into this like offensive new place. Oh, yeah. And that, and that kind of like, that was the next level and the story kind of like started turning into it. So I didn't start it uh, by any means, but it, you know, it, 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 it definitely took it up a notch. And, and uh, that, that was a little, little, uh, just a little historical uh, twist there. Yeah. That, now, that was me. <laughs> now, did he, didn't he kind of retract his statements or apologize later? I, I think, think eventually. That's... Eventually, he apologized for some of it. Yes, he did. Um, and, uh, you know, he was, I think what the essence of what he was saying was that unlike, you know, a guy like that at that time assumed that unlike, you know, Rage Against the Machine or whoever, that Bruce was this all-American super patriot, uh, you know, pro, who, who might be assumed to be like, you know, pro everything the police does, you know, just this cart. This this total distorted wrong cartoon flag waving idea of Bruce, you right, know, that's, and, and that's and that's why he was so angry about it because he couldn't believe he couldn't believe it, you know. He, the, <laughs> this guy now is against the police, you know. That was the kind of the. <laughs> I mean, as we pointed out in the episode when we talked about that, right? Bruce had done the Pat King benefit. He was known to donate to local police well, sure. down yeah. on the shore and all that. I just the whole thing was just ludicrous. And then you get this guy on the phone. He really did kick it up into another notch with the floating fan comment. That's uh, <laughs> that's an immortal one. He, he, spun beyond, he spun beyond the known boundaries of the human language, actually, of, of the English language. Like, I don't I don't even know. He was making up slurs. I don't even know <laughs> what, what, what happened there. Oh, that is great. And, and of course, the Pat Lynch, who was the the other leader of the of the, wasn't he the? Is he also FOP? No, he's PBA. PBA. All right. I mean, okay. he's he was he was there mouthing off too about Bruce, and now he's still he's still the leader leader of that of that association. And it's so funny to see him on the news almost every other night. Let me ask one final question: Out of sure. all the people you spoke to, Clearmouth and Plotkin, Bruce himself. All the band members, Aniello, Brendan O'Brien. Who did you feel like gave you the most information that you hadn't previously heard, and that you were like, "Oh, I can't believe I'm hearing this." Well, I mean, I, you know, not not in any way to dodge the question, but but I think I think you know a, a lot of people in their own way had that, you know, and I think. Um, I think it was very helpful. Again, it sounds like I'm dodging the question. I'm really not. It's just I think. I think some of the people I really enjoyed, again, going back to the beginning, like that assistant engineer in Blinded by the Light, I'm sorry, on, on, on Greetings, when he told me that he that it's his guitar, this dude's guitar that he still has uh, is the only acoustic guitar that Bruce plays on that album because Bruce didn't have a shitty guitar. And this guy was like, oh, I have this nice new guitar. He ran home to his mom's house. He was 20 years old or something, brought his acoustic and matched what Bruce plays all over the greetings album and this guy still has a guitar he's like i can't really prove it but i you know i'm telling you that's you know I, he's like i don't want to sell it or anything but this is the guitar the greetings guitar it's like in my house right now i'm looking at it <laughs> so uh but that just little things like that i just for some reason got to get a, a a real real kick out of um the um i enjoyed the uh you know the, uh the, sorry to talk to so many people i don't want to screw up his name but but uh the, um the engineer on Dark. Tom, Tom Panuzio? Yes. 
Um, yeah, so, so in his in one edition of the book, his name's misspelled, which is why I have a mental block on it. Um, th- <laughs> but Tom, Tom is Tom. Tom was fantastic, and he had all these details. And then back in the present, uh, Ron was was amazing. Had me in the studio and played me the um, the 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 stems, like basically the individual tracks of all this uh, modern era Bruce stuff from Wrecking oh, Ball and everything. So wow. So to, so to hear how they they built the song was just so incredibly enlightening on every level. Enlightening about enlightening about how these albums in particular were made, enlightening about how albums are, you know, it, it's actually a real eye-opener about how albums are made because not every part sounds that great in isolation. Uh, you know, because especially on rock and roll stuff, you actually want some of the parts to sound like kind of janky until you put it all together and then it sounds cool. But it was right. fascinating to hear, like, you know, he'd play a background vocal or something and, and in isolation, you're like, I don't know if that's... <laughs> That's a little off, actually, but then you put it. So, it's, but but that's you know that's rock and roll. Oh, you know? that's and, great. And, and that's and that's by the way exactly what they never you know what a problem with something like Human Touch is they would never have something like that on Human Touch you know because they they perfected everything. Right. But um, but you know I learned I learned a lot from them just you know him, him you know playing the um, how they built up loops and just you know and you know and, and and just also giving me the opportunity to pay close attention to the really recent stuff. Uh, because you know, and and to and to get really into like high hopes and stuff, and into uh, and, and and into wrecking ball. So you know, every, everyone was great, and I think it really underscored that you know that Bruce has had all these great and dedicated and gifted and caring people around him who really cared about every note they played, uh, and you know, it it. Uh, that that was a revelation for me, you know, and, and like I said, like the stamina and energy and focus that they all shared. And it, and then when you think about it, when you take a step back, you're like, of course, like how else could they have survived? <laughs> you know, that's a good yeah. point. We uh, Ron seems like a very interesting person, and we like his social media that he actually reveals what's going on some of the time. So he pulls back the curtain just a little bit, just just enough to tease us. Yes. Well, right. I think, I, yeah, I, well, I was just saying, in, I think in 2020, I think there's a little less of like, you know, it's it's like, what's the point? Of, you know, what's the point in being that uptight about things? You know, it's like, it, it, and at the same time, keeping a lot of secrets. So, you know. All right. Well, let me ask you another question that kind of sure. the kind of piggybacks on house. What sure. was the biggest surprise to you? What was the thing, the, the tidbit of information that was like, oh, my God, really? For you. I mean, for for some reason, what what jumps to mind, and it's a very small thing, is the bit about um, it, is the bit about Bruce uh, getting punchy. I think it was during Cadillac Ranch and and recording in a Richard Nixon imitation. Right. Uh, okay. Vocals. So just stuff like that, like the idea that that exists somewhere is just is just amazing. <laughs> just just little little things like that. Um, but uh, you know, I'm sure I'm sure there's 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 other more major things. I I, I definitely enjoyed the story about. The, the the strange saga of Pink Cadillac, which isn't the song I like super. Oh well, actually, I would say learning, and maybe it just happens that Chuck Pock and I agree on some opinions, so that's just a, you know it just happens we have similar taste. But learning that the studio version of Pink Cadillac, which I, I really don't like very much at all, uh, that Chuck Pock feels felt exactly the same way. That basically that when he did it, Bruce was parodying his own song. Uh, he never recorded like a real version of it in his mind. Like you know, he never, he basically never tried to make it good. <laughs> so he, he, uh, like he, he never took a serious take at it. That's right. Yeah, he he was doing it as sort of a goof. 
you know, in, in the studio. Like it has that, it has all that like deliberate over echo and, and the performance is a little campy and it has, it has like sort of a, I think what, I think what, uh, yeah, he, right. He, yeah. Uh, Chuck compared it to crocodile rock. <laughs> <laughs> Not a compliment. Yeah, exactly. So he called it the crocodile rock version of it. So it, it, I thought that that was super, super interesting. It, it's, it's nice to have your, um, to have your, your, your sort of instincts from hearing something confirmed by someone who worked on it. So that, that's always fun. My favorite tidbit that you got was it just goes to the extremes that they go to that Max flew out to L.A. to play one live fill on Brilliant Disguise. <laughs> right. Right. And then, and then also him 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 uh, hitting the snare drum in Bruce's uh, in, in Bruce's cottage house over and over, you know just sitting there with a the snare drum. Uh, just one drum. <laughs> one drum. One drum. Not uh, even a full so set. That, that's right. Just 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 banging a drum with Bruce in a room. Well, Brian, thank you so much for doing this. We deeply appreciate it. This has been amazing for us, and uh, it's been great talking to you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Oh, no, thanks for having me. It was super fun. I could do this every day. Oh, well, we may have you back then. (laughs) Done. But, yeah, thanks, and congrats on the show. It's a lot of fun. Thank you very much. Well, that was our discussion with uh, Rolling Stone writer Brian Hyatt. Brian is also the author of the book, Bruce Springsteen, The Stories Behind the Songs, and a really fascinating book. And if you're listening to us, you should definitely be uh, definitely own a copy and read it. <laughs> Essential reading for sure. And definitely. that was really a blast for us. And I hope everyone listening enjoyed it as much as we did. Yes. And I'm thanks sure again did. to Brian. Yes. Thank you again, Brian. Well, Flynn, I guess that's pretty much the episode, incredibly the last episode of what we're calling our first season. (laughs) Now, to set up what's going to happen, we are going to take a little break here and we're going to return on Bruce's birthday. But we do want to say to people that should there be any breaking news in between, uh, we're going to pop back on for probably a mini episode. Yes, uh, we're going to hopefully have something to talk about, something interesting and new, and we'll We'll be here as soon as as soon as we can to to talk about it. And so you feel pretty confident that by September 23rd, we're going to have something to talk about. I believe we will. Yes. Oh, very exciting. <laughs> Are you getting getting me fired up now? Uh, you know, I'm getting a little giddy too. So um, we need it. And just before we wrap up, we just want to say to everyone listening, and and we really are touched by the number of people that seem to be listening, that we have really enjoyed doing this for the year, and we're looking forward to coming back. and And we really do thank everyone. It's it's been really a great experience. How many people have reached out to us and said they were enjoying the show and that they heard something that they hadn't really thought about before as it pertained to Bruce's music. So just really deeply, uh, thanks so much. Yes, it's been a it's been a heck of a year, as I said, and it's been a lot of fun doing this and interacting with people on on Twitter has because of this podcast has been such such fun. And so please keep keep doing that. Keep reaching out to us and we'll uh, we'll always love we always love to talk about Bruce. So uh, even especially on Twitter. And it didn't really work out the way we thought, because, of course, when we started the podcast, we really did think there was going to be a Springsteen tour this year. Now, <laughs> it had already been 
decided, I guess, before the pandemic, there wasn't going to be one anyway. So it's yeah. not like one got canceled. But uh, needless to say, the way the year worked out, it, it was going to be a lost year anyway. So <laughs> I don't think anyone pictured how this year was going to turn out. So, <laughs> <laughs> And let us just hope that 2021 will be better. But we'll have more to talk, more time to talk about that later in the year. Yes, we will. Yes, we will. Let's finish with our usual bit of business. None But the Brave is a presentation of Bull Market Entertainment. Please subscribe to the podcast on your platform of choice, whether it's Apple, Spotify, all the big ones have it. You can find us on the web at nonebutthebravepodcast.com. And of course, on Twitter, we are at NBTB Podcast. Yeah. So thanks again to Brian Hyatt for joining us tonight. And thank you, everyone who who listened in, during season one. And for Hal Schwartz, I'm Flo McLean saying, we'll see you further on up the road. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. Mad Magazine. Advertising mascots. B-movie posters. And cartoons. Oh yeah, can't forget cartoons. If you get the funky connection that ties these pop culture gems together, you'll dig two designers walk into a bar. See, we're a couple of creatively curious pals living between the bookends of grand museums and dive bars. Hey, you know the place. The sweet spot where highbrow and lowbrow become drinking buddies. So join our barroom chats as we talk influential work and uncover stories of how the familiar became iconic. Think behind the music for the stuff we love. Check out our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com. And listen wherever you get your podcasts or visit evergreenpodcasts.com.